I'm Susan Stamberg. Close your eyes, and if you've heard me on the radio, it'll, it'll look better. <laughs> but I am taller than I sound, and so are you. <laughs> I don't know if the word got out to you. I brought um, a handful of my own interviews to play for you and to talk around, but I'd love to hear some of yours, too. I'm not sure that that got uh, conveyed. Uh, but I see you have a rather large backpack there, and maybe if you dig into it deeply enough, <laughs> you'll find some things that um, we could listen to. Bits and pieces, you know, none of your 89-minute opuses, please. Um, and then stop and start and just talk about what, what the dynamics are and what we think is going on uh, in them. Um, what, what was the description of this thing? Asking the smart, dumb, informed, innocent, baggage-laden question and how to decide when each is appropriate. <laughs> if I knew the answer to that, I would not have had a career as long as I have in radio. But part of the reason of sticking with it for so long is um, you keep learning new answers, you know, and new ways to approach things and new ways maybe, if you're lucky, to, new ways to put a question and to pose to pose an idea or a thought, advance some information. Um, so we, we'll, let's just talk a little bit. And do feel free to you know, uh, raise your hand and add. Let's make it a conversation rather than me babbling at you. Um, but one of the things to think about it is what an interview is and what it's designed to accomplish. Uh, because it's a number of things depending on the use to which you're putting it. First of all, in journalism, it, the interview is journalism's most basic tool. That is, as journalists, we wouldn't know what story we were writing if we didn't interview a whole number of people to find out what they thought, what their ideas, their opinions, their information was, so that we could meld it together into, into a report. Um, an interview is often a fact-gathering expedition kind of formless, just going out with a long fishing pole and throwing a million questions out and seeing what you catch back and then making the decision as what, what you do with what it is you've caught. An interview uh, is also an opinion-gathering expedition as opposed to a fact-gathering one. That is, you're asking people, what do you think about something? Not, what do you necessarily know about something? David Kestenbaum uh, would have talked about the fact-givers, most likely. Uh, if you went to, I did not go to his session this morning, but I suspect that's what he talked about since most of the people he interviews are scientists who put things to the test and look at them over and over again. Uh, opinion is something else again. Uh, rarely tested, certainly never in a scientific way, but tested by throwing it sort of out into the public arena and seeing uh, if it floats or who bats it back or what people do with it and about it. Um, and... Uh, an interview is very different for different media and for different purposes. Print reporters, for example, do interviewing all the time, but their interviewing is very different from what a, a host's interview would be. A print reporter's interview is closer probably to a radio reporter's interview in that it doesn't particularly have any shape or form to it. Uh, for, for a newspaper, you could ask any question in any order, you know, stick it in your notebook, and then when you go back to sit and write your story, you flip through and you take a look. And, you're, and similarly, that's true. Uh, it certainly has been true for... How are you? Hi, Jay. I'm sorry, I have to stop and just say hello to old pals here. I forgot it was going to be such a wonderful reunion. This is really very nice. Um, 
Um, so, so an interview for a radio report can be similarly shapeless. I mean, you can, it doesn't matter about having an order to the questions that you ask because you can pluck, you can hunt, you can take a question you asked in the first minute, use the answer from that, and another question that you asked maybe 20 minutes in, but which has a very good answer and put it next in the order of things for, are you with me on this? You're looking a little puzzled. You don't get it. You're, you're, not, you're not with me. If you want to, maybe there's a difference in news interview. If you're going to ask something very difficult, painful, uh, and then you're working slowly towards it, and then when you've discussed it, you cannot talk about the weather and go back to it. I mean, you're building up to something. That's true, and you need to decide in advance when you're going to put that extremely painful question. But I tend to think of that sort of interviewing, uh, really more in terms of the work that I've done for most of my, of my broadcast life, which is the broadcast interview per se, not the thing that you cut and paste. But I have a perfect example of this. Um, it was just on the air recently, uh, the point that you're making about the painful questions. I uh, did an interview with the writer Joan Didion. It was on Morning Edition the other day. She's someone I've known uh, for over the years. And uh, once I published an interview that I did with her in the 70s as the favorite interview that I'd ever done. And I, th I think I would still almost stand by that this, much, this many years later because it was just such an extraordinary conversation and interchange and, and a revelation of her thinking and her approach to writing. She's a great heroine of mine, someone I admire enormously. So I've kept in touch over the years. She has a book out now called The Year of Magical Thinking. And it's about, uh, I suppose, the m most unimaginable year any of us could conceive of. While her daughter was, her only child, was lying in a coma in a hospital, and she and her husband came back to their apartment in New York, uh, having visited the daughter. Uh, she was preparing dinner, and he collapsed of, of a heart attack and died at the dining, dining room table. She made a book of this. Uh, which is an extraordinary piece of work. I do really recommend it to all of you. Any of us who have suffered any kinds of loss or known people who have, uh, have to look at this book as just uh, the most amazing act of bravery to discipline herself. And clearly, this is all she has left. She has lost now because uh, four months after the book she made about the death of her husband was published, the daughter dies. So she's lost everything in the world that is important to her. And what she has now is the writing. And the book is the fruit of that. And if you take a look at it, it's just, it's such an extraordinary uh, exercise in discipline and thought and absolutely no self-pity, but it's full of just the most muscular emotion, I guess is how I would describe it. I sat down to talk with her, but we were not face to face, as is true for so many of our interviews at NPR. Um, there's a certain deception to that, and there, one of the editors there says, insists that uh, on any program with which he is connected, we reveal that. We say, she joined us from our studio in Chicago. I forget to do that sometimes. Uh, or, you know, it just takes up time in a six-minute segment, and I, there's just so much I can uh, get across. But I think he's right, because it sounds so different. It sounds so face-to-face -face when so often it's not. Didion was in our New York studio and I was in Washington. Thinking about it later, in a way, I was thankful for that 
because uh, I feel quite connected to her, and I don't know how well I would have done, really, face-to-face -face with her. Before we started, she said, Susan, you know about my daughter. And I said to her, I do. I know about that. I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to do it close to the end, and I will not linger. And she said, fine. Now, I don't often telescope that way, but she raised it. And I know her. We have that relationship. And also, you know, there's something very personal with me. Uh, it's something you may not share. Uh, I really don't like exploiting people's emotions for my professional use. My impulse tends to be when someone starts to cry in a conversation to turn my tape recorder off and give them time to collect themselves and, and, and present themselves as they would want to be presented. That used to be a really hard and fast rule with me. Uh, less so over the years, really, as the dynamics of broadcasting have changed, as, as broadcasters have begun invading privacy far more than uh, we did when I was starting in. Um, I don't know if there's anything more that I want to say about that. Uh, yeah, the exception now would be, you know, if you're going to go and cover Hurricane Katrina or if you're in Pakistan and you're dealing with people who are experiencing in that moment a terrible tragedy and tremendous emotion and that's as much uh, what the story is about as anything else, I think I wouldn't turn my tape recorder off or I would be missing the story. Do you understand the difference that I'm, I'm trying? Yeah, Andy? I'm just curious if you heard Terry I didn't. How was it? I want to know. Well, Excuse me, you said she, she could have, or what? She, stopped, she stopped recording. Left it in the keys, and she left it as, you know, this moment, and then nobody asked if she'll stop it. She stopped, and she told her audience, Diddy, and start, began to cry at that point, and I turned. Left it, and then left in, Joe saying he'd stop the tape, and then she came in later and said, you know, well, Joe didn't even gather her thoughts, blah, blah, blah. But it made me really uncomfortable. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm uh, one of Terry's uh, biggest fans, but I have a problem with her exactly this way. Although it's very interesting to me. We were, I ran a panel once uh, that she was on about interviewing. And we talked about Monica Lewinsky. You know, this is one of Terry's finest moments. Monica Lewinsky walked out on her. It's every broadcaster's dream. <laughs> Where are you, Edwards? Who walked out on you? James Watt. Yeah, James Watt, a government official, walked out on Mr. Edwards. But it wasn't live, was it? Yeah, right. But, but Lewinsky walks out on Terry. And uh, Terry, uh, all you hear is the end of Lewinsky's answer. And then in comes Terry, who says uh, Monica Lewinsky was getting very uncomfortable with the, uh, the, the path of this interview. And at that point, she said, I'm not going to do this anymore. She got up and left. And I said on the panel, Terry, why didn't you keep the tape rolling for that? That would have been quite extraordinary. I mean, it was not as if we were invading this woman's privacy. Now, was it? <laughs> so I bet you, not to take credit, but I bet I put the idea in her mind that it's a pretty good, <laughs> it's not bad to keep a, a tape recorder rolling. But it would have made me very uncomfortable, too, with that. Yes. So, knowing Joe Didion, how do you feel like that affected the interview? Because I heard it, and I was kind of holding my breath. 
while you were doing How so? What, what was in your mind? I was wondering if you were going to ask the tough questions of her. Um, I, it just felt really intimate at first, and I thought, I, I don't know if she's going to go for it. You know. What are the tough questions? Well, about, you know, kind of her daughter's death and how she's, you know, still grieving that now and it's affecting the book coming out. Um, I didn't ask her. I didn't ask her any of that. Um, and I thought you got to a much more intimate place with her than Terry Gross. Um, you know, my, my closest friend uh, in New York, I've had a, an interesting range of reaction to this interview. Um, my closest friend in New York said to me, I heard your interview with Diddy and you sounded nervous. And I thought that was very astute of her. You know, I think I was. I was, uh, I mean, we sh shouldn't really get in positions where we're trying to protect our sources, but I think I was doing that. I, you know, she has always struck me because I've been a very close reader of hers as like a rubber band that uh, is just pulled like that. You know, she has a kind of sensitivity. I urge you, if you have not read her, in particular her journalism, which uh, I can't tell you how much I've learned simply from reading the way she uh, goes out to report the things that she perceives, the things she notices, uh, and how her antennae are always sort of wiggling in the air, picking up things. Um, but to me, that's a very sensitive human being and one to be treated uh, uh, with great care. And I think that's what my friend Debbie heard me doing, sort of tiptoeing around her. I sure didn't sound easy with her. I noticed playing it back. And you know something else. Uh, we, I, I talked to her for about 15 minutes. That's about as long as I go these days. I just hate making a lot of tape. You probably, you probably don't work that way. <laughs> but uh, I try to be as efficient as I can, you know, and just uh, get to uh, uh, what I want to know and the things that I think listeners will want to know uh, as effectively and quickly as I can. Uh, and so not make hours and hours of tape and then pick out the best uh, seven minutes for broadcast. So we did about 15 minutes. And very quickly, someone on the Morning Edition staff edited it. I had four other things going on. And so I listened uh, to what he did, and it sounded just fine to me, and it ran that way. But uh, for the first time, I gave permission to put the full interview up on the web. I don't like doing that. I don't like putting raw, and it's never raw. You know, there's always a little, when you go, uh, 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 they get rid of that. They clean you up a little bit and do some cosmetic work. But um, I don't know, you'd probably disagree, and this would sound very NPR-ish to you. Uh, I'm not crazy about uh, revealing always to listeners what our editing process is. I think they should experience the magic, you know, and let it go at that. They don't need to hear the 27 sloppy answers and the ridiculous questions. Uh, of course, we would cut all that away uh, before we put the big blobby thing on the web. But still, I, I really do have feelings about that. To me, it's an art form, uh, 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 the, the making of the interview and then the editing of the interview are very much bound together. Although Edward Lipson was telling me now he's going live doing interviews for uh, an hour, is it, on Sunday mornings here in Chicago, and that's great. Uh, I, I, what? It's sloppy, but sloppy's great, you know. In some ways, NPR's too not sloppy uh, these days. Uh, wait, wait, I have to finish telling you about what was this, the thing that got on the web. Just let me finish my thought and then we'll come to you. Um, I do that in interviews too sometimes, by the way. I interrupt people and say, wait, wait, hang on just a minute, I want to ask you about that. And it's not a bad technique. Um, 
in the, in the 15 minutes, she said something that I found so extraordinary that I was really sorry that I hadn't uh, spent more time with the producer uh, before we put it on the air. She, she talked about getting up in the morning and uh, forcing herself to get out of bed and make telephone calls. Was that, uh, did she say that to Terry? <laughs> just, just a little professional curiosity. <laughs> did she? Yeah, uh, it just struck me as so amazing that she, um, that she said, I mean, it was her way of, of coming alive of the day. She said, I was never the one to make the phone calls. John always made the phone calls. But now she said, I forced myself to get up in the morning and make a phone call to become a part of life. Anyway, um, I was sorry that we didn't put that, you know, in the broadcast part of it as opposed to the web. Edward. You said you were glad that you were not in the same state. Yes. Um, but I think as a listener, I'd be lucky that you have this relationship with her. And if the two of you got very emotional, that could also be revelatory. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm not at all comfortable weeping to my listeners, really. And I, I mean, why should I burden them with that? Uh, that might, it might be interesting, but why? I mean, uh, it's not, uh, that's not my role. I'm not there to, I don't think. I think. Maybe more emotional. Well, you know, I said to her, uh, and this was very personal, because it was about me, although, you know, the trick in, in radio, you say, um, I know people who, you really mean. <laughs> I said, I know people who uh, can't throw away the Rolodex cards for friends who have died. That's me. I can't do it. I will draw a line through the card, you know, but I can't throw it away. And she said, oh, I can't do that either. I can't do that either. Uh, I have an address book full of the dead, which was r really quite something. Well, you know, we're friends, let's reconvene in a week because um, she's coming to Washington to uh, do a reading at the Folger Library. Uh, it's for the Penn Faulkner Fiction Award. And I've, uh, I'm going to be introducing her. So in fact, there we will be you know, in the same room, face to face. And uh, I'll be worrying about her the whole time. I will. She's small and she's fragile. She's fragile. Yes. Uh, I'm just curious to know, I do uh, probably an erotic amount of homework. Did you say neurotic? Neurotic, yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, I used to, when I was your age, so over-prepare, you know, that I went in, I went in knowing too much. The other extreme is Larry King, who, you know, prides himself in never reading a book because he wants to be at the same level as his audience. I don't know. He made a lot of money with that, didn't he? Really, quite amazing. But, um, yeah, I used to, with Didion, I way over, the first time I talked to her, you know, uh, in the 70s, just read everything and every article I could find and everything about her. But it was a way of organizing my mind, you know, and focusing uh, my mind. And I'll still uh, do that uh, from time to time, n not quite that extensively, uh, unless uh, I absolutely know nothing. But uh, here's an example of two stories that I just went out to gather tape on. Uh, in one, uh, I did 
absolutely no preparation because I was really eager to see what I would learn. I went to France, uh, don't hate me for this, uh, to do uh, advanced taping for two big art shows that uh, will be up at the National Gallery at the uh, beginning of the year. One on Dadaism, and that was the one I did no preparation for because uh, I, I really know that nothing about it, and I wanted to see what would stick. You know, I wanted to sort of and uh, go in as a blank piece of paper, and I could do that. I had the luxury of doing it because it was that far in advance that, you know, if I really messed it up, I could go home, do the reading, and find other people to interview by January once the show uh, is up. But the other was on Cezanne in Provence, which is going to be a spectacular show, and for that I, I did an awful lot of reading biographies and... Uh, and uh, analyses and essays and books on him. Uh, and that's odd because I know a lot about him already, but for some reason I found myself doing that. So it's a, it's a peculiar mix. Um, but what I wanted to talk about, because uh, I was making that point about um, the sloppiness of a print interview, say, or the kinds of interviews I do when I know I'm going to cut and paste them for a report with written copy in between versus a broadcast interview. And my thinking about that uh, in advance is that it should always have a beginning, middle, and end, and that I should plot it in some way. With you, I agree that uh, I'm not as good at this as I used to be. Uh, I used to be always ready to abandon that plot, that framework, and go you know, wherever the answers were taking me. Uh, to a certain extent, uh, I still do that, but I do less on-air interviewing now than I used to when I was uh, doing the daily programs. Um, and so, and I tend to interview more as a reporter, and I must say I've gotten sloppier as a result, because I know that really I'm just going after the sound clip, you know, not, not uh, myself in it. Although, that's something I want to talk to you about once uh, I start playing some tapes, the presence of the question asker in the context of a report, which on NPR is very rare. Uh, somehow I seem to be able to get away with it, and it may be that um, uh, I spent so many years uh, as an interviewer that the editors sort of lower the threshold, <laughs> you know? They lower the bar and let me do it. Um, so that business of giving it some shape in advance, and yes, plotting in a way to know where, to think ahead where you're gonna get tough, you know, where you're really gonna, uh, go in uh, and and press a little bit and or and get emotional uh, or whatever. Um, and I thought, if okay, can I play a little stuff for you? I brought a, a few things, uh, and they're a mix of interview and reports. But let's start with uh, an interview. This is of uh, the photographer Richard Avedon, who died just a few years ago. Um, it was uh, on weekend, it was for weekend Saturday, and it was a long time ago, it was October 93. But to, and it, the form is a pure radio interview. He was in uh, our New York bureau, so again, we were not face-to-face, -face, which I believe uh, I established on this tape. There's nothing fancy about it. There's no production in it, there's no writing. Uh, it's just, um, it's just a conversation. But something else I need to tell you, uh, beforehand in it is, in addition to trying to think of what the shape of the piece will be, I also always, or, or as much as I can, think about trying to make something happen in the interview. So it's not just question, answer, question, answer, but something happens that's a surprise. 
that I don't expect, that the guest doesn't expect, but just occurs and makes you listen. Uh, my philosophy these days about uh, making radio is that I have to fight for every second of a listener's attention. I believe that more strongly now, I think, than I ever have because of that wash of sound that we are putting out every day. So much sound, just talk, it's mostly talk, that's going out on the radio day after day. And to pierce through that, to grab you by your collar and make you listen, not just overhear it or you know, think of something or just listen, with, but to make you listen even when you're really not interested, when you really don't care. That's, uh, that's my motivation. I certainly can't say I succeed, but it's in my mind to do that, to just jiggle you up a little bit so you'll listen to it. So let's, here's Avedon. Oh, I wish I could see. Hello, how are you? Richard Avedon is one of the most eminent photographers of our time. He began his career taking fashion photos for Harper's Bazaar in the 40s, but is now best known for his portraits. Compelling, sometimes surprising images of the great and the near great. Avedon's life inspired the 1957 movie Funny Face, where Fred Astaire took the pictures and Audrey Hepburn was his model. Now, age 70, Richard Avedon is staff photographer for The New Yorker, the first in the magazine's history. He's also just completed his autobiography, a collection of photographs published by Random House and Eastman Kodak. NPR's special correspondent Susan Stamberg sat down with Mr. Avedon and his book. I think we need to start with the physical size of this book. Which weighs more, this book or your 8x10 Deardorff view camera on a wooden tripod? I'd hate to be, have to carry either of them anywhere. It's okay. big because it's big. 284 black and white photographs. Very few words. You call it an autobiography. Uh, you don't arrange it chronologically, but it does include the first photograph you ever took, 1931-32. Describe it to us. Uh, well, there are, I think there are two in the same year, one of my sister and my mother. Wait, I just want, to, want you to hear what I'm doing. Who hears what I'm doing? Nobody. I'm moving information to you as quickly as I can. I'm not writing a script. I'm not saying this is a really big book and it's arranged chronologically. But in conversation, I'm moving stuff, things you need, I think you need to know. And things, and I do it for another reason. So he hears that I'm going to cover this, and he doesn't. By the way, that's something we do. I learned it uh, from Cindy Carpian when she was producing Scott's show, uh, is to always self-contain an interview, to, to write the introduction to the interview before you go in to uh, do it. That way, you've given it a frame. Your guest knows the things that the audience will have heard before he or she gives the first answer. And so it, that's another time-saving device. It means that they don't have to go over all of that. And you can always do it far more efficiently than they, because you're writing it. You know, you're sort of in control of it. Hang on. When I was nine, with the Eastman Kodak box his first brownie. Picture. And uh, my father was a teacher before he became a businessman. And he loved to teach me everything he could. And so the principles of photography were the first thing. And he showed the way in which light burned 
by using the drapes and how they were bleached, how the light-sensitive surface became a negative and then became a print. And as he explained it, since my sister, being the beauty of the family, was photographed by all of us and by me all the time, and we, we photographed Louise with parasols and clown costumes and standing <laughs> in the sunshine, and I thought, well, skin is light-sensitive, and skin gets tanned. So I took a negative of Louise and pasted it onto my shoulder and went out to the beach. The next morning, I peeled it off, and there was my sister on my shoulder. Oh, my goodness. She later died in a mental institution. Oh, my. And I think her beauty had something to do with that. It's oh. kind of an isolating experience. What an incredible story, yeah. What strikes me in these early pictures, not uh, just a story like that that shows your ingenuity, but you were composing... At the age of nine, you knew to get down in that rowboat and take a picture of your mother rowing so that it was framed perfectly and it fit right in the, in the area of, of the picture. You knew all of that at that age. I'm bad on the Bible, but wasn't there light before there was anything else? And weren't there days of light before there were rivers and, and mountains and trees? And but long before anyone spoke, and as a child, our way of experiencing the world is formed long before words. The things we're afraid of. I mean, to fall out of your crib is like Annapurna. Mm. To be hungry with no way of getting food, it's starvation. And then you want the breast, and it, that's where the food is, and then maybe it jams into your mouth too quickly. I mean, I think the experience of being a child is so psychotic. Mm -hmm. And the way we learn to deal with these things that can never be dealt with is visually. So I think I'm arrested on the visual level. Mm -hmm. I think I, I never got much further than that. Uh, I said that the book was not arranged chronologically. The first image Listen in up. the book, I wish you would describe for us and tell us why you chose to put it first. I think, if I remember correctly, the first photograph is a man on stilts. Wait, you have to reach for that? You must have worked hours to decide what the first well, photo Well, I'm just trying to be a little... Dramatic. ...attractive. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know exactly what I did. It just... I like that part very much. And that's an, that's an example of making something happen. You know, listening really hard, which is always the secret. It's not the fancy question. It's listening really hard to the answer and hearing him say, oh, I think. I mean, I've... Uh, been involved doing some books, and the thing you think about the most is what the very first words are going to be, you know, how you're going to start, just as with a piece, how, how are you going to begin the piece? You'll have spent more time thinking about that, or how do you begin the interview, than anything else you do. Begin, first of all, thinking hard about the beginning, and then thinking really hard about the ending, and sort of the middle takes care of itself. So I knew that he didn't have to stop and think about what the first image in the book was, and I called him on it. It's a simple little thing, but it roughed it up a bit, you know, it sort of jiggled the, jiggled the surface, and it pulled, I hope, it pulled the listener in to hear it. Came. What is that first picture? It's a man on stilts in Sicily, in Palermo, and he must be from a little country circus, and all the people in the town are following him, and I put it first because it's a kind of perfect metaphor for the artist. Not above the crowd, but apart from the crowd. Looking at everyone on very shaky feet. Uh, those feet can go crashing at any moment, and yet he's not down there with everyone. Mm -hmm. And you have to have that, that distance at all times. In other words, I'm looking through, the, through this uh, 
booth here at, at the rest of the team, and I'm watching their faces and learning more from the way, uh, for instance, is it Melissa is trying to encourage me. It's Minoli. M Minoli. No wonder I didn't <laughs> her name. Sounds like something delicious. Um, she's trying to encourage me, but the nature of her encouragement is not natural. Uh -huh. It's it's to make me feel good, and I can't stop thinking about how she is doing it while I'm speaking to you, because my eyes are my first language. Right. You know, it's so funny. Later on, because I made some plans for this conversation, the last question I was going to ask you was, what are you looking at right now? Because you're in our studio in New York. I'm in Washington. I can't see you. So tell tell me that some more. What I'm really asking is... Do you look at things differently from the rest of us? Do you think I'm looking at a microphone, but I bet you're looking at the same microphone there in New York differently? No, I'm looking at something very weird. What? There's a shelf, a little double shelf in front of me, and it's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, something like 20 little glass balls that have snow in them. You know that you turn <laughs> upside down? <laughs> yes. And one has a cow, and one has uh, the, the, the nativity, and one says Texas snowman on it. So I'm sort of, one part of me is thinking about how would I photograph those yeah. if I had to. Yeah. Uh, I've just finished an issue of The New Yorker that has to do with the Kennedy years, now that it's 30 years since the assassination. I'm going to go forward And this there were certain people I couldn't cameras, photograph. So I want you to hear, is that all right with you? They're dead, that's why I couldn't uh, I photograph them, for example. Uh, 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 and did this still life, but I have to tell you. He really was a charmer, if you tell. And you once said that a portrait photo set. Really Everybody who's ever looked at a poster in a, in a college dormitory knows that photograph of yours. Um, and you once said that a portrait photo session involves unearned intimacy. I never forgot that, and I wish you'd explain what you mean about it. I think it's very much like what you and I are doing now. We don't know each other. You have your agenda, I have mine. You have the right to ask me anything you want. We're the same person, Susan. We use people to express ourselves. I mean, there's no question you can't ask me in the next few minutes that I won't have to respond to. The result will be the result of the two of us dealing with this unearned intimacy. I mean, if you came over to me at a party and asked me the kinds of questions you could ask me or are asking me now, mm -hmm. I would either turn away or say, I, are you a, an anchor lady, or what is this? You know, this is not a normal conversation, Susan. I don't right. talk about right. myself. You don't go around <laughs> interviewing people, I hope, at dinner. You know, so what we're doing, you must understand me perfectly. I mean, you cannot interview uh, the Empire State Building. Right. But you can interview me, and we both must have this feeling about other people. Uh -huh. okay. but, but in a photography session, people can, just as they can in an interview, uh, I can be lied to. Well, so can you. That's right. There at your camera. And, and, and if someone lies to me in front of my camera, I think that's interesting. I don't want to get through anything. I think a person who's lying is really interesting. Much more interesting than some bore who tells the truth. <laughs> <laughs> or, or the fact that he or she is lying then becomes who they are that's right. In your photograph. That's right. And that's interesting. And that doesn't mean it's the last word. And my truth isn't anybody else's truth. It's just 
I guess, at bottom, a way of expressing my feelings through them, writing my autobiography with other people's faces. A reviewer in Newsweek writes, there is no repose in Avedon's photographs. Do you agree with that? Well, there's no repose in my life. <laughs> I mean, I get up a quarter of six, I jump out of bed, I go for the coffee machine, do last night's dishes, and start... Um, I think that exchange is really interesting. I, I never forgot that phrase, unearned, unearned intimacy, because I just feel that's a description of us. That's our work, you know, and uh, except that I so objected to his saying we do the same thing, we use people to express ourselves. I, I really don't believe I do that, and, and I wouldn't want to feel that I did. I mean, I wouldn't want that as part of my job description, that notion of using people. And I, again, I mean, uh, Edward's point about uh, Diddy and I being the same room so you would hear our emotional uh, connection. My self-expression is not the issue in an interview I do. It's facilitating the self-expression of the person to whom I'm talking. But the thing that really tickled me the most was he said, you wouldn't do this in real life. Yes, I do. I mean, <laughs> listen, when I was in high school, my friend Judy Spiegler never wanted to come to my house for a sleepover, she said, because I kept her up all night asking her questions. So I have been lucky enough to find somebody to pay me to do <laughs> This natural thing that I've done all my life. I do ask people questions at parties. I, do, I, I guess I am an anchor woman. <laughs> you know, it's, it's what I do. Wait, Jay had something and then you. Well, I, I just want to say the moment that, that he stops and he's looking through the glass, and it's a moment of, of true actuality. And for one thing, he's being our eyes, uh, using his eyes, see. But it's also sideways from the interview. It's uh, not the track that you were following, you did an elegant turn to drop in that final question and take advantage of that moment to bring it forward. It's a moment, I think, when everybody in the room stopped and listened and actually paid attention because it wasn't on the agenda, mm -hmm. it wasn't normal, it, uh, it was a moment of truth mm -hmm. actually happening. Mm -hmm. And yet, I think there are a lot of editors that would cut it out. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, I've heard this uh, quite a few times, and my interest at that point begins to flag. I think, oh, I should have cut that. So because my attention span is shrinking over the years. So it's interesting that you, I, I trust your reaction to it far more than mine at this point. Like something that wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't planned, you betcha. That's right. You're taken care of, you're ushered in, you're smoothly to the end, and you unfortunately often, I think, know exactly where you're going and that's where you go. You're told that you'll go there and you do it. Or I do it. wasn't, and then all of a sudden, those are little, well, what else might Mm-hmm. He did, but I stopped it at that point. I mean, you didn't hear the rest. And I guess I did because I wasn't interested anymore. And he goes on to a whole, I, I kept it in because I thought that part was very good. But where it went wasn't very interesting, really, which is, I guess, what my impulse was to stop it at this point. Yeah. Susan, I really always love your, your stuff. It's just really fabulous. What Thank you. What you're saying about how you didn't agree with him, but I'm saying that you indeed do do that in your life. And you always have yeah. people questions. About, do swimmers have big arms or they become swimmers because they have big arms? Do journalists, are they just nosy or were they nosy? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, nosy. I, I prefer curious. <laughs> yeah. Terry's nosy. I'm just being a, not just, oh, come on, let's call her up. <laughs> yeah. What do you do when you think somebody's lying to you? Um, you know, uh, it never occurs to me that they're lying to me. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
I don't know. It's more with pol I don't tend to interview politicians who really come in sort of with their agenda. If I'm interviewing, mostly I interview artists and uh, creative people, and they're talking to me about their work, which is always lies, you know, in the service of the greatest truth. So I don't know. I can't. What do you do, <laughs> dear? <laughs> Yeah, you didn't use it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'll, soon I'll play you something where I don't know if he was lying or very old or, yeah. Um, I was just listening to what you were saying in the beginning about the woman whose daughter died and how much you admired her work, really admired what she'd done. And um, a while back, I interviewed a musician who was a favorite of mine, and I, of mine, and I was just wondering how you sort of work that angle into your interviews. You know, if you know everything about the person's work and you're just like, oh my god. Like, how do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you mean how not to gush or to... Or even just, like, if you do know so much about this person, is that... A yeah, I don't know about her, so much about her. I've, I've read a lot. Yeah, that I've read her, I've experienced her art, the work she makes. That's different from... So, uh, you mean, but if I were a real fan, if I were talking to somebody who, uh, of whom I'm was enormously, uh, well, uh, I, I can play you an example, but it's not really a fair answer. Um, in, uh, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant. I've really done thousands of interviews, and I'm sort of over that. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I'm always uh, wanting to engage with a creative person about what that work is, what makes uh, a Didion essay Didion, what makes George Gershwin, George Gershwin, or, or Paul McCartney, what is the thinking and what is the process, the creative process that has created that? So it's really on that level more than, oh golly, you're so wonderful. I, I don't find that very interesting to say to people and, uh, and uh, so it doesn't get you anywhere, you know. Uh, um, most people are embarrassed by being fawned over, you know, and if they love it then I don't know if you want to talk to them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This actually relates to what you were about. This is about talking to artists about their art. Um, I find most artists don't really want to be in a position of explaining in words. No, and, and that's really a close call because if you, uh, you, you don't want to ask the poet what the poem's about. It means he's failed as a poet, right? <laughs> if you have to ask me what it's about, then I haven't communicated to you uh, what its essence is and what it means. So you have to find a way that's a little more interesting than where did that idea come from, but where you're really asking that question. The piece that was on this morning, the theater piece. Oh, Sarah Rule. Do you know her? Did you ever hear of her? Listen, she is the future of theater. She is such a playwright. She's 31 years old. Rule, R-U-H-L. Uh, she's got a piece. Watch for it in your town. It's called The Clean House. But uh, she's got a lot of other pieces that are uh, making the rounds now. It's going to be here at the Goodman, I think, uh, in, uh, in the spring and in other places. She's really a superb, superb playwright. Excuse me, I interrupted. How did you set up a line of questioning for yourself going in? That was a very, uh, that was a very haphazard interview, uh, really. Uh, there wasn't much time for it. She was in the middle of rehearsal on this failure that she's just done. It's really a dreadful piece. Um, called, 
called uh, Passion Play, which had its world premiere at Arena. But you know, with someone of this skill, it doesn't matter that it's no good. You know what, where, where she's going to take it. You know, this is the first time up for this piece. It's far too ambitious. It's beyond her ability. She didn't get the right kind of help from the director and the, the production people. But a year and a half from now, you know, it'll be worth running to see. I mean, that's how good she is. So uh, she, you know, she was in the middle of a lot of things. We didn't have a lot of time. So I just, uh, we, we talked really about the, how in her work, that connection between uh, laughter and death, I mean, she really pulls these things off in the most sophisticated, it's almost like magical realism what she does, so fan fanciful and, uh, and bizarre and funny. And the play, uh, I opened the piece with an excerpt from uh, The Clean House, which begins where a woman comes on a stage and starts to talk in Portuguese. She's telling you a joke. You don't understand a word, she's saying. You're laughing your head off. She's telling it so funnily and her body gestures and the things she's doing and her expressions and all of that. And you're sitting there laughing. And, and not understanding a word. What an accomplishment that is. And really her theme in that is death. It's death. And you're laughing your way through it. So that's what I knew I needed to talk to her about, where that came from. And she revealed that when her father was dying, when she was 18 or so, uh, he made a point of cracking jokes. You know, he, people would come to see him. And he, his point was to amuse them really something. And so she's quite revealing about it. Um, but I just peppered a, uh, threw a lot of different questions at her with very little form because we were, I knew, I knew it wouldn't be broadcast as an interview. So I knew I could be sloppy. And I also knew that I didn't have a whole lot of time uh, to talk to her. Yeah. You talked about not over-preparing for interviews. I'm just wondering if you could describe a little how you prepare. And you, you write out words that this is, these are topics I want to discuss. Yeah, I do uh, all of that. Um, and it depends. You know, there I, do new, I have to sometimes do news interviews when I sit in uh, on Morning Edition or sit in for Scott uh, as a host. And those, I really do need to write it all down. And I need to write it in a sequence and almost word for word. Other, other things, uh, just because I don't think as quickly as I used to. But uh, for other things, yeah, I'll jot a note or a phrase down to myself, but I'll, I'll write a structure. I'll write a structure. I'll know where I want to stop, start and stop. But uh, as you were saying, f the need to feel free to move away from it. I mean, you know, don't just go from question two to question three. That's the worst thing you hear on the radio. You hear it all the time. You know, someone not listening to the answer and just moving along with their list of questions to the next question where you've got a thousand questions that you want to. When I'm preparing, I feel like there's a certain, when I'm coming up with what I want to ask, I feel like there's a certain way I want to ask them. Just write out my topics, but I wouldn't ask it as good as, you know, I want to. And I guess I, maybe I could do a good job of just doing it. Well, are you doing it for, are you doing it for broadcast? For, so your questions will be heard? Uh, it's possible. Yeah, well then, sometimes it's a good idea to write it out. You know, David Mamet said that once uh, in an interview to me. He said, we write dialogue all the time. We're all playwrights. We rehearse in our minds. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. We don't have to be embarrassed. Before you go to see your boss, you're running in your mind what it is you're going to say, how you're going to put it, what your first words will be, how you're going to ask for the raise, what the language is you're going to use. That's true. So that's okay. We don't speak as, as uh, use as many uh, expletives as Mamet, hopefully, in, in life. But, yeah, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. As long as you're... 
Yeah, as long, <laughs> and as long as you can read in a lively fashion. <laughs> it reminds me of something Dan Shore said when he just told about starting off at CBS uh, and, and someone coming up to him and saying, uh, uh, you know, he, he asked him for advice. I think it was William Paley. And uh, uh, Paley said to him, Dan, the secret of this business is sincerity. And if you can fake that, you can do anything. <laughs> By the way, go and see if you haven't. You must see the, uh, the Mara movie, Good Night and Good Luck. It is extraordinary piece of work. It's really good. Um, uh, yes. I, I want to get back to uh, sort of the impact of the presence of the interview. Yes. Uh. Um, you know, I'm young, I'm a woman, I lose my credibility sometimes the minute I walk in the door. People will hear me on the radio, have a perception of what I look like, who I am. Yeah. You know, I once had a person say to me, you know, gosh, you look nothing like I thought you would look like. I said, well, what did you think I would look like? And he said, well, you sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so my question was, do you have any tips or tricks? Yeah, get old. <laughs> Grow up. <laughs> We used to get that all the time. Bob and I did from our days uh, doing All Things Considered together, and people would meet us and get mad. They used to yell at him. They'd say, you're much too young. You know, you don't look like you're supposed to do the same with Noah. Because, you know, you sound sort of authoritative. Oh, tips. You know, you just have to show them. You have to have a certain attitude, and, and don't be cowed by it. I suspect that you're being cowed by it, and that's why it's bothering you. So get, get a mental attitude for yourself. Uh, imagine them naked or something. You know, it's always the, the tip when you're nervous about giving a speech in public. Just imagine the whole audience naked, and you'll be fine. So, you know, just get... get. Yes, you do, and you, you can say that to them, and you can say it at the beginning. You can say, uh, I do this often. Well, you know, you have to on record. Uh, tell them that you're recording and say that the piece will be highly edited. Very often I say, I'll take your words out of context and I'll distort your meaning. After all, this is journalism. <laughs> and that gets them laughing, you know, it sort of loosens up. But that's, again, it's not, well, sometimes I'll do that face to face, but I'll always, most always do it long distance. But I'll also say, we will highly edit this piece. Uh, I will say, I'm an extremely sloppy broadcaster. Uh, but by the time it gets on the air, I'll just be smooth as silk. And you feel free if you're not happy with the way an answer, I won't say this to a politician, if you're not happy with the way an answer is coming out, stop, and we'll do it again. I mean, I'll give them that option. But all, you've also told them something else really important there, and this is something you can do when you start an interview. You've told them you're in control. So just do it that way. Just tell them what the rules are. Let them know. Uh, yes. I'm curious as to what your reflections might be on being an interviewer who now has probably as much notoriety as the people that you're Notoriety? I doubt that. Unless you know something I don't know. How do you think that affects the way people interact with you? Being someone who they probably know by name right off the bat versus being a fairly anonymous journalist. Yes, thank you. I think that's really less true now than it was when I was doing dailies, you know, when you're sort of out there all the time. I'm really not on the air that much, maybe once a week now. So it's not so much, uh, so much an issue. But it certainly has been a problem uh, going in the field and people stopping and they wanting, you know, you're, you're a working girl and they want to talk and tell you how much they love public radio and want to know what Bob Edwards is really like, all of that stuff. It sort of does get in the way. It makes it tougher to to do the job. 
Um, but often people are just thrilled to pieces to have the chance to talk to you, which is very rewarding, and that's quite wonderful too. You know, they're up for it. You know, they're, they're pleased to be asked. And the other piece of it is they want to do their best, you know, and so often they will. And that's a, that's a nice thing about having a reputation that they'll rise to. But it, it can certainly get in the way. Um, I, yeah. Hi. No, I don't say, oh, gee, now I'm going to go, uh, no, I don't. But uh, it's sort of a joke around NPR with me <laughs> because um, so, so much of it, of what we do is not face-to-face, -face, and I will uh, always say, uh-huh, uh-huh, and it drives the producers crazy. It drives the cutters crazy because they've got to edit it out, you know, or I make them edit it out because it gets so obnoxious. I had a producer once who very sweetly said to me, Susan, I think what you're doing is reassuring them that you're still there. You know, they're away in Chicago someplace, and you're reassuring them that you're there and you're listening, and that's what it is. I don't think it's that at all. I think it's a real New York habit. You know, New Yorkers do that a lot. Uh-huh, uh-huh, and then what? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I, I also think it can get extremely obnoxious. So I try to control myself, but it just may be beyond me. Yes, sir. So I'll take an interview four hours if I think that my subject has the endurance. You will? Do you have the endurance for that? Not usually. <laughs> then why do you do it? No, rare occasion. I, what I'm trying to say is that I'll take an interview as long as I think my subject has the endurance to, to give good material back and is still into it. Um, I always feel like the next greatest statement is the next question away or the next statement. And what's it for? I mean, how you, what's the form in which it will I, appear? I no Pardon? I do no, no narration. Oh, you, you'll run the, a straight interview. Question, answer, question, answer? No, no heavily edited. I don't... I don't yeah, yeah, but, but what... Oh, you don't, so it becomes a monologue. Yeah. Uh-huh. Where do you broadcast this? Um, well, I'm, I'm new, but so Morning Edition, All Things Considered. Uh-huh. Two places I've run. Thank you, Mr. McDermott, for running my first piece. Oh, good, yeah. good. And you—that's four hours of tape that you've. Well, um, in one occasion, no, it was never four. But it's been two. <laughs> it, that was an example, but I would go four if. Yeah. I think you're probably right because you're starting out, and you need—you should. You said fifteen, and I wonder. Hey, you know, I've been at it a while. So, yeah. But, I mean, if you're beginning, I certainly had made an awful lot of tape. If it's Richard Avedon or uh, Joe Didion, the next great thing that... Well, you know, you know, I know it. I know. I know. I just decide. I hear... You know, it's like when you start out and you go out and collect Vox. Have you all done that? You go out to a shopping mall. And, you, and at some point, you just know, I've got it. Koki used to say, I'll do two more and then I'll go get a cup of coffee. You know, and instead of 20 people, you just have to listen. And you listen for your tape, and you know when you've got it, and you stop. I mean, at some point. Because, I mean, life is full of the wonderful next quotes. <laughs> and you can't always be chasing them with your magic wand, or you'll never get to the next step so other people can hear them. But, but if you're just beginning, then go at it. Do it. Yes. Um, this is connected to the whole sort of meanness versus you uh, <laughs>
getting very zen. Yeah, well, I, one of the things that I find to be very compelling about what you do, it's sort of connected to what Avinov was saying in terms of, you know, you're using other people to express yourself. And I don't buy that. But what I appreciate as a listener about what you do is that you are present in the interview. So it, it may not may show up in too many hugs, but it's also in like a peal of laughter or in a moment of, of audible surprise yeah. or um, incredulity or that you are emotionally present yes. when you interview people. And I think that that is really refreshing. That, you know, that's the credibility, that there's something very credible and human about that that is also, <coughs> I would imagine for a lot of people, very scary to, as, as a reporter to do that or as an interviewer. Yeah. How much, how much should I show up? Uh -huh. How much can I, can I keep listening and respond? Mm -hmm. and I, I feel like you've got that. Yeah, and uh, I think those are good points. Thank you. Um, I, I, you don't do that all at once either. I mean, uh, while you're busy gathering your four hours of tape, you don't do it. You, you know, you have to ease into who you are. Uh, when I started on All Things Considered, Bill Seemring, who uh, really created it, the program, would say to me, be yourself. And I never knew what that meant. You know, I wasn't ready to be. And it takes some years. It certainly took Bob some years to just ease in to this is all very scary and the idea of talking to all those four people out there is just can be terrifying. So till you get the confidence, it doesn't happen all at once and it shouldn't because then what would you have to work on, you know? But um, eventually you can be comfortable enough and you see you get away with it and that people like it and people are responding to it and then you can be a little easier with it. Um, I, I, let's do the sow's, sow's purse, sow's ears, because this was really, um, in many ways, a, a milestone. It's another photographer. You know, I like to talk to people in the arts, and uh, uh, particularly the visual arts. This is Henri Cartier-Bresson. Do you know that name? He's the father of photojournalism, and uh, he never, never gave interviews. He uh, died uh, a year ago, and I'm trying to remember, well, we'll hear on the tape how old he was. Um, and in his last years, he was really reclusive. He never uh, talked to the press. So this was quite a coup. And it happened uh, in Paris uh, thanks to a, a friend of his and a friend of mine, a mutual friend, a man named John Morris, who was uh, his editor, first on Life magazine. He was the photography editor for Life. And then he was the executive director of Magnum, the photographer's agency. And uh, I uh, got to know John in connection with a television project that I worked on some years back. And he lives in Paris, and I love to go there. And so whenever I go, I would get call and, and get in touch with them, and uh, we'd go and have dinner. And uh, it took me some years before I asked John if he would help me to get to see Cartier-Bresson. But I finally did that. And it was at a time when uh, um, Cartier-Bresson was having a lot of big shows. He was starting a foundation in Paris, which would become his archive. It's quite wonderful, by the way. And if you're ever there, you should go and see it. Um, but also, he had a big show at the uh, National Library. And he was very much in the news at the time. So that it seemed right uh, for me to uh, ask this favor of a friend. And John very kindly arranged for me to go there. What ended up on the air, uh, I guess it was about a six-minute piece. And what you will hear 
is every usable second that I came away with from this interview. I mean, it was, I had nothing. <laughs> I had nothing. This man didn't want to talk to me, didn't want to see me, didn't want to be interviewed. Uh, it had been arranged. I went to his apartment with John, thank God, as you will hear. Um, his wife was there. I sat down next to him. I took out my microphone, did that, and he said, oh, no, 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 no. And his wife said to him, Henri, <laughs> we agreed, we discussed this, you're going to talk. <laughs> and you'll hear, I mean, that's how it was. That's how the whole thing went. But I do want to, and so, uh, of course, I couldn't broadcast it as an interview, because I didn't have one. <laughs> so I made a report instead, and let me just, oh, sorry. John Morris is the name of our mutual friend, Henri Cartier-Bresson's he was his editor, his photography editor on Life magazine, and he was the executive director of Magnum, the agency. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Bob Edwards. In 1930s Paris, when Henri Cartier-Bresson showed his early photographs to Gertrude Stein, she advised him to go into his family's business, manufacturing sewing threads. Ignoring that advice, Cartier-Bresson became a father of modern photojournalism and one of the greatest photographers of all time. In Paris, a retrospective of his works is showing at the French National Library, and a foundation has opened that bears his name. NPR's special correspondent Susan Stamberg went to visit the famously reticent photographer. How do you do? How do you do? I'm Susan, thank you. His fifth floor apartment on the Rue de Rivoli. Famously reticent photographer. How do you do? How do you do? I'm Susan, thank you. His fifth floor apartment on the Rue de Rivoli overlooks the Tuileries Gardens and the Louvre, the Eiffel Towers in the distance. It's one of the great views. Oh, my Lord. You get to see this every day? Yes. I do Which is your good ear? Which is your good ear? None. Henri Cartier-Bresson will be 95 in August. His hearing's gone, but he appears healthy in his green sweater and turquoise bolo tie, cane at his side. I like to look out your window. Have you done drawings of what you can see from here? Cezanne did. And Monet, Pizarro, climbed up to paint this view. Cartier-Bresson began as a painter. Those roots are clear in his black-and-white photographs. Pictures composed in the camera, no cropping ever. The human experience caught in the click of his Leica. But in 1975, he gave up photography. Now he draws. John Morris, his friend and one-time Life magazine photo editor, says Cartier-Bresson never discussed that decision. If he had, I would have said, you're crazy to give up photography. Because in a way, the rest of the 20th century was lost to his camera. What his camera had found was an Indian child in 1947, the baby's malnourished ribs echoing the lines of a nearby wagon wheel. Shanghai, 1949, a crush of people desperate to sell their gold before Mao Zedong's revolution rolled over them. Moscow, 1954 dust-covered men and women taking a break to dance before returning to their back-breaking construction jobs. Decisive Moments, which is the title of a 1952 collection of his photographs. Cartier-Bresson's wife, photographer Martine Franck, says her husband was always in sync with the times. I think Henri had an innate intuition of what was going on in the world and what was important. I mean, you were... 
You were in India when Gandhi was assassinated. You were in China when the communists arrived and the Kuomintang left. Uh, you were in Russia at the right time. I mean, I think... Uh, You're reproaching me to be here now? I'm not reproaching at all. I'm <laughs> saying that you, in fact, <laughs> you, you knew where to go at the right time. <laughs> the great photographer sends a reward across the room to his wife. It's clear she keeps him going. 30 years younger, she organizes his affairs, and Martine Franck runs this sunny, simply furnished apartment. On the white walls, not a single photograph, only some drawings and paintings, and on a far wall, a large oil by Matisse. They were friends. Henri Cartier-Bresson knew all the grades. Now, his memory is fitful. He speaks in fragments and with reluctance, especially when you ask him about photography. I never think about photography, he says. It doesn't interest me. It's in some drawing photography. This is the man who once said photography was a matter of putting your brain, your eye, and your heart in the same line of sight, thus defining the search for photojournalists. And Henri Cartier-Bresson achieved that alignment better than just about anyone else ever. The pictures he made over a 45-year career have influenced every professional photographer and countless amateurs. In his Paris living room, leafing through a book of favorite photos by other people, Cartier-Bresson pauses at an image captioned, Black Boys Ashore, Lake Tanganyika. C'est la première photo qui m'a impressionné. The first picture that impressed you? Yes. Martin Munkachi took the picture in 1931. Three African teenagers run into the surf. Their arms stretch toward the water. Their heads are thrown back in joyous anticipation. Their naked bodies glisten. Why is this so good? C'est la perfection. Without that photograph, I never would have thought of taking photographs. It was a challenge. Does it seem a very difficult photo to take? Well, it's perfection of shape. Henri Cartier-Bresson once said Munkachi's picture made me suddenly realize that photography could reach eternity through the moment. After he saw it, Cartier-Bresson got himself a portable Leica camera. I asked about a picture he took in 1946 of Jean-Paul Sartre. The widely published image has always intrigued me. The philosopher stands pipe in mouth on a snowy Paris bridge. He's bundled against the chill in a muffler and overcoat. Sartre is talking to someone, a man, whose shoulder and profile you can just make out on the right edge of the frame. Why did he take this picture? Just for pleasure. Hmm. I'm interested in it because of his eyes. He's talking to this man, but... He's looking in another direction. And I wonder why that's your choice. Uh, uh, he was cross-eyed. <laughs> you see, I thought it was a picture of him thinking. Because when you look away, sometimes when you're deep in thought, you look away. So much for fancy theories. This may be why HCB hates being interviewed. Anyway, he's given us a Sartre for the ages, the way we will always think of the writer. This is Henri Cartier-Bresson's great gift, defining images, shot with great precision. Great intelligence, too, says John Morris, who was executive editor of Magnum, the photo agency Cartier-Bresson helped found in 1947. Intelligence, education, a sense of history. And the final thing is, it comes from the heart. He 
has great human perception. He understands children, he understands old ladies, and he knows what moments are significant in terms of the human being. The National Library in Paris, where the Cartier-Bresson retrospective is showing till the end of this month, is a sterile, heartless place. Four glass buildings on a stark plaza with slippery steps and trees encased in cages to protect them from the sharp wind. But inside, the photographs on the walls give off warmth and humanity. They are full of life and experience and empathy. Photographic art by a man who will argue against that phrase with his old friend and colleague, John Morris. The result of your photography is considered a work of art, just, just as a painting. What is a work of art? I mean... I can't help it, Henri. Photographs are now considered works of art. And you're one of those who made it, uh, made oh, it so. Blah, blah. Oh, no, come on. You were the first photographer to have a show in the Louvre. What does it mean? I mean... <laughs> I mean, don't put it down. It's important. What? It's important to all the rest of us. An old, brief, black-and-white film shows Henri Cartier-Bresson taking photographs. He's at a Chinese New Year's parade in New York. In a dark overcoat and brimmed hat, he bobs and bends and weaves through the crowd, peering into his Leica. He shoots, dashes further down the street, looks, looks, shoots, a hunter after prey. Now and again, Cartier-Bresson puffs on a curved pipe in his mouth. Glasses. His eyes are very blue, by the way. Look, shoot, look. Then he removes the pipe, taps it empty against a shoe, and pockets it. He's done. Until he spots one more moment about to unfold. Henri Cartier-Bresson rises to his toes, stands on one foot, takes one more photograph. It's ballet. An act of grace. I'm Susan Stamberg, NPR News. Some of Cartier Bresson's photographs. So, um, uh, <laughs> that's everything I got. <laughs> and thank goodness, as you heard, that John Morris was there because without that, he never would have said blah, blah, blah. I think we've come to the end of our time, but. Uh, and I hope it was helpful to you all. Keep up your good and hard work. It's, it's a wonderful medium. It's a wonderful medium. And you can't, you can't help but advance it and, and embrace it and, and make us all listen to it with, with enormous pleasure. So keep at, keep at it.